to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. So we are going to be, like I said, spending about 10 or 11 weeks in these parables of Jesus. And so um, if you're used to exegetical uh, expository preaching, uh, that's, there's a, you don't have to necessarily go from you know, verse 1 through verse 30. Just following through, you can do expositional, exegetical preaching using a, just a section of Scripture even. Even if you do, a, if guys do it right, just, just letting you know, if guys do it correctly, um, there's a way of doing topical. You could do seven weeks on prayer, and you could do really, really good expositional, exegetical preaching on the, the, the topic of prayer. What you do is you choose a, a main passage and then you exegete that passage. So just want you to know, so there's sometimes some confusion from people like, oh, we, the, you know, we were at a church and we were expositional and they thought that meant like if you go into Exodus, you go through all of Exodus in which that, that is true, but there's other ways of doing this. So um, we're going to try to be doing that with parables, bringing that out. And so, um, like I said, really excited about that. Um, just the, the fact of parables. I wanted to... Um, uh, us corporately to be led into just intentional time with Jesus Himself. Um, nothing better than that, right? Um, um, you got to you got to think through. God God determined all the words that were recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, in those, and then also the the other New Testament epistles where Jesus shared stuff um, it purposely, intentionally with um, Paul in a, in a very peculiar way. And so, um, in that, all of those things, as we go through these, I wanted us to, to to corporately be led into time with Jesus, but also wanted to grow us in maturity and also in enjoyment of Him. I hope that every week you're not thinking more about um, specific points of the sermon, but you're amazed at the grace that Jesus had. Not only his gracious words, but you're falling more in love with him as you realize how much he loved you and how much he did for you, the work that he did for you. And so I hope that grows us. Um, and some, there may be some, there may be children that are listening, there may be youth, there may be adults that are coming that for the first time they meet Jesus through those parables. There's been a lot of people saved um, through the parables of Christ. And so um, to begin to look at parables, we have to see um, that God wanted these parables to be a um, to be placed there with a purpose. Jesus was very intentional with the parables, and we're going to learn a little bit about that. Um, if we read in our quiet times, or you're reading the Bible, and you get to the different Gospels, and so Jesus is walking, healing, doing different things, and then all of a sudden he steps in and does a parable, um, sometimes the, you, you, if you step back and look, there's a very purposeful laid out plan, and we're going to see that in Matthew today. Um, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, were very intentional in the way they recorded them. And, and John, um, he, he has zero. So just so you know, just a little background info. Uh, John's gospel has zero parables. Uh, Mark's gospel has six. Uh, Matthew and Luke, they have the most. And, and a lot of them overlap, but they have different styles. Um, it's helpful also to understand the different writer's style. So what I mean by that is, um, so at points like we're going to see today, Matthew is not necessarily going chronologically day by day, month by month, and the next day Jesus did this, and the next day Jesus did this. Matthew pauses and goes, I want to group together some kind of topical things. I'm going to put some parables together. So chapter 13, we're looking at Matthew 12 today. Chapter 13 is him grouping together a whole bunch of parables, and we're going to see those first two or three that we look at, if you miss those, you're not going to understand any parables. And I was speaking specifically to that crowd at that point. Like, if you miss these first two or three, you're not going to understand the other parables. Obviously, uh, the grace of God can come and can give give under understanding and insight. But um, as, as Luke goes through it, Luke is a little bit more... Um, um, colorful in his writing. He develops people's characters. He develops a little bit more of the scenery around the events where Jesus is there. Matthew's a little more black and white. So if Matthew's black and white, Luke is very vividly color. And so um, at one point, um, Jesus says this, uh, says this that, that Jesus had much to say to them, and yet he spoke to them in parables. So think through that. Jesus has a lot that he wants to communicate, 
communicate, but the word yet means that he chose to do it a little bit differently. Like instead of just, hey, here's exactly what I want. Here's three steps for you guys. One, two, three. It's like yet. He didn't just say it that clearly. He spoke in parables. So we got to take note of that. Why would he do that? And that's what we're looking at today. Um, Why is it that he spoke in parables? Is it reserved for only the smarter crowd? You grew up in church. Obviously, you understand the parables. You understand the story. Is it for the smarter crowd? Is it reserved only for the deeper thinkers who are able to kind of, oh, I see what he's doing there. I see the comparison. I get what he's saying. So the ones who are a little bit deeper thinkers, not just going for surface value, going to the deeper meaning. Is it for those who are a little, maybe a little bit more intelligent? Um, is it maybe for those who just kind of have it all together? And it's obviously for my life and the way that we do things that, that we're able to take Jesus' teaching and apply it really well, especially compared to all of you in your lives, right? And so some people, we don't notice that, but that's what a lot of people can actually think like. Um, is it only for those who have good hearts? And answering all those, this is exactly why Jesus spoke in parables, to show them it, it's not for the intelligent, It's for the very simple-minded. It's not for those who have it all together. Yes, it can be applied to those who have it all together, but it's also for the messiest, the ones that you would want nothing to do with in your life. Uh, Is it for those who are are the ones who are able to um, think deeply? Sometimes, because there's a deeper level, it's a spiritual truth brought on by the Spirit, though, not just deeper secular thinkers. And so um, we want to see why Jesus goes into parables. Um, I would suggest this just as a side note. So another reason I love this idea of teaching through parables, um, every week we'll be able to track together. So you as a couple, you as an individual, you as a family, it's a really easy thing for us to go as a corporate body going through the parables to take that parable and that week, man, spend some time, maybe two or three days um, looking at that as an individual or as a family. That's a great one. Take some notes on your phone. Um, or on paper, if you still use that. And, and just, man, your family, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, just, just go back and ask, ask two or three questions about that parable. Read through that simple parable. It's a great family plan or, or a couple's plan. Um, walking with Jesus. And we're getting to see from his eyes, from his perspective, and then due to that, his perspective, well, here's what I would like to speak to that. And then seeing the significance of that for our lives. Um, You could do that as a family each week, taking the parable that we're on and that was taught that Sunday, and then just take some notes, ask some questions. What prompted this made-up story that Jesus saw people needed? How does it reveal Jesus' great love and sacrifice for us? How is it pointing to the gospel, what he provided in the gospel, even those who are far from him? And and, and what we're going to get into here is uh, this idea of of interpreting. I hope this also along as kind of a side process, it helps us all become better interpreters as we're reading the Bible. Uh, I want to do a little bit on just interpretation. So um, the first thing that we'll see here, um, this introduction, what we're going to look at today is the introduction and background work. I always do that on every new series. If it's a new book, I usually spend probably 30, 40 minutes developing the context. So you have to understand this writer being led by the Holy Spirit, was speaking into a particular city, particular church, and we have to get that understanding before we just take it into American Christianity, which sometimes is really, really far off, especially if you're just doing it like, hey, how can I be more successful? Let me read this part of the Bible. Like, that's not what God's concerned about. And so you have to take the context. It's always speaking to that. And so, and understand, even on the, the opening of a book, what was, what was going on in that city? What was going on in that culture there? Why God sent the gospel and sent this story and this church into this time? And what was he trying to do there? What are some things we can learn from that? So context is huge, introduction and background. Then secondly, looking, just understanding interpretation of parables. And then third, we're going to get into the story behind Jesus' story. So before we go into all these parables, what's the story that changed to where Jesus started speaking in parables? Uh, I mentioned this turning point you see up there, the story behind Jesus' stories. We're going to look at the build-up and the background situation. We're going to look at the turning point in Jesus' teaching. So if you, you scale back a little bit, we're going to see a turning point in Jesus' ministry and his teaching, complete change. And then the weighty reason for Jesus' parables. And I say it's, it's a turning point, and I say it's the story behind Jesus' stories uh, because this is at the end of the second year of his ministry. Unknown, 
No big deals. We get like one glimpse, right? He's at the temple, 12 years old. Mom and dad get worried. Where are you at? They pull up their iPhone. Hey, does anyone know where Jesus is at? Hey, he's at the temple. He doesn't come down hard on him. He's like, I'm, I'm here for my father's kingdom. I'm doing the work of my father. I want to spend time with my father is what he's showing them. And so that, that's kind of weird. I don't know if he got a spanking. I don't know if he got in trouble for that. It wasn't sin, but whatever happened, that's all we get for 30 years. And so now some of us would go, man, God, we need a little bit more. Let me tell you, I'm so thankful that God had the wisdom not to show us more about um, his early life and children. Do you know what we, we would be like as parents? If the Bible was just saying like, here's what Joseph and Mary did with Jesus, we would be like, oh my God, we have to do this. We can even do it better than Mary and Joseph. Like we would make legalistic lists out the wazoo uh, if, if they would, God had showed us about like, here's what Jesus' life was like as a child. We would be all measuring our children by that. And so be thankful that, that maybe that wasn't you and that, that you wouldn't be doing that as a parent. So as he goes into this, it's the second year of his public ministry. All of these teachings, all of this care, all these signs and miracles, he's inaugurating the kingdom. Early on, he's saying, hey, the kingdom is near. And so John the Baptist had been doing his work. Repentance and faith is required. Um, all of these pictures that he, he's going through, all the stories we know, and we're towards the end of the second year. He had had the, the religious leaders, the religious elite confronting him. He's growing in popularity, all of those things. And there's this change at this point, this turning point. From this point on, Mark brings out, from this point on, he only spoke in parables. After this little situation, these two or three situations, he only spoke in parables. So we have to ask, why would that be? When he was in public teaching discourse, no longer, let me just tell you about the kingdom of God. Let me try to connect Old Testament stuff. When I speak publicly, I'm going to speak only in parables. And Matthew and Mark bring out that at public uh, teachings, he only spoke in parables from that point on. So the end of his second year of ministry, we need to understand why that he determined to switch that. What was going on? The, and, and we're going to see Matthew laid it out intentionally, the events, but also the connecting context. And we need to be both warned and encouraged that if we're a, that if we're a follower of Christ, we need to be thinking through that for ourselves today. So let's look at this, uh, just some more introduction and background. The first thing there, an explanation and definitions of parable. So um, Parabolo, parabolo. There's, you'll have different Greek scholars say it, the the two L's together is yeah, and so it's got this bio, and so it's from two different Greek words. Um, the uh, para meaning beside, um, and then bio meaning uh, to throw, and or you know, if more modern context, you know, hey bio to throw, and so you see there uh, beside or ball. That was a joke. Got to get it. Maybe one guy. And so uh, joining these together, it literally is to place alongside or to throw down alongside. And so it's this picture, and we know the first one we go into is the sower. Lots about sowing. It's this picture of sowing some seed or throwing a couple of things down beside each other, and it's a comparison. So it's something being compared beside one another to bring out a spiritual truth, and it's something that's very obvious and very visible. Um, so that, that's the thing. It's comparing two things beside one another. Um, uh, you, you math nerds, a lot of you medical people, uh, parabola, it's where the curve mirrors each other. So we got a lot of medical. So I think a parabola, um, parabola, if you want to say it that way even. Um, I'll probably get corrected when I get home. Uh, it's, it's that curve that is mirroring one another. Um, a popular definition, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty bland, but MacArthur says this, John MacArthur says, an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So a parable is a comparison story. It's using literary tools. Jesus it leaves um, didactic teaching. Here's the command, repent, do this, to let me tell you a parable, a story, and he just makes it up off the cuff based off of God's omnipotence and um, omniscience of knowing what the people's hearts need to hear. And so he goes into these made-up stories. And it, it's, it's a similar visible reality comparing something else with a deeper spiritual truth, a reality of expanding significance. So uh, it would be Jesus saying, you know how this works. We all see this. Well, in the same way, the kingdom of heaven is this. 
And he'll make these comparisons. Sometimes the, the comparison is really, really small. The parable is really small. Sometimes it's long and has a bigger storyline to it. We know those. There's also some uh, places, I'll go into this next week a little bit, but there's also some places where it's not a true parable. Um, he, he's using some different metaphors, and it's not necessarily a true definition of a parable. So just know there's other times where you may be going, hey, well, when is a parable, when is it not? Some of the authors even tell us, now Jesus told this parable. Now Jesus told this parable. So... Um, it's a visible reality that helps you understand and see and hopefully desire the somewhat visible but also invisible elements of the kingdom of God. That's why you're showing them. And in the same way that you see this visible thing going on, I want to let you see that and compare it to this somewhat visible but also invisible kingdom of God that's among you. If you're understanding this, you're becoming part of that kingdom of God. If you're not, you should be warned. You're not understanding the spiritual element of that. Um, Moeller, Al Moeller says this, parables are, powerfully, are powerful precisely because they catch us off guard. I like to think of parables as this seed that's thrown down, like he starts out with this first, first two or three, and it's planted, and so it, it's spoken, it's communicated, and you may go, it's not that you necessarily reject it, you may go, oh, I think I get it. And what's powerful about God's word and the spirit is three weeks later, you're just driving down the highway and it could be a country song. It could be a person on the side of the road and you're sitting there in traffic and all of a sudden, he brings to life. It's like a seed that just bursts forth in the ground. And now all of a sudden, there's this little vine that just is, is burst forth and it's life-giving and it's inside you. And so that's how God works with parables. Um, it's a mystery the way he does it. This surprising, surprising aha moment where you go, oh, it may be three weeks later. It may be the next day. It may be six months later. It may be a scenario that you run into uh, with, with relationships and the Holy Spirit brings back this thing. And pause and realize that and let the Holy Spirit do work there. He's one. That's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not necessarily just coming to an event. It's when the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. Oh, here's this chance that these people have done this and they're hurtful. It's coworkers, it's family members, and they've hurt. And Jesus said, here's what that would be like. I have a chance right now to forgive them, applying the forgiveness that he gave to me that I don't have for them, and I need to forgive now and show them mercy. That's what that parable meant. And they're right in my face. And everything in me wants to be frustrated and hate them. And Jesus is going in the parable. And guess what? Not only am I telling you that's how it should be, I can give you the power to do it. I'm the one who can let you do that. I can empower you. The Holy Spirit wants to do that. So some beautiful pictures for that to look at. Um, it's a gift from God. Um, it should be helping us tra be transformed and changing us, um, leading to greater love for God and worship. Um, another thing, just on interpretation. The second thing there, understanding interpretation of parables. So from I got a little chart up there from 33 to um, the 400s. You've got the main players in the church, um, Origen, um, Alexander of Alexandria, um, uh, Augustine, same birthday as me. And so Augustine gets a bad rap, but they, they went by allegorical interpretation. So allegorical would mean, so let's take um, any story in the Old Testament, any story that you read, um, allegorically, if you interpret it that way, instead of literal. So allegorical versus literal would mean um, Adam and Eve are not actual real human beings, which, by the way, it always pops up and pops up in church history. So when they're, they, uh, what was that one church group movement that the uh, one church that was, you know, that everyone was saying, oh, we can't trust scripture and all those things. So that, that's just, that happens every two or 300 years or every 80 years. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. And so in that, when, when people start taking scripture and going, oh, it doesn't mean this, um, Adam and Eve are not real characters uh, Job was not a real character. Um, they're just giving us these little allegorical things to teach us. Um, also, if you take um, a, one of Jesus' parables and then you try to deconstruct it down to little bitty, a hundred different elements or 50 different elements, you've missed it. It's not talking, it's not trying to have a, a secret meaning for every character in the parable. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But that's allegorical thinking and that's allegorical interpretation. When someone says, hey, yesterday we went from Muskogee to Tulsa and we had a flat on our way, you're not supposed to go, hey, I wonder what they mean flat. 
oh, I bet they had a fight in their marriage. I bet you know someone died. No, they said they had a flat in their car from Muskogee to Tulsa. You're not supposed to interpret that as an allegory. You're supposed to interpret it as a historical narrative. They told you a story historically happening, and so you, you have to interpret it that way. Allegorical interpretation ruled the day until the Reformation, so from 33 AD up to about 1500. During the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages there, 400 to 1100 AD, who was in control? Roman Catholic Church controlled everything, right? And so what was then what happened? They were using allegorical interpretation. Augustine gets a bad rap. So Augustine did on his apocalyptic understanding, he interpreted with a lot of allegory with um, the other parts of the Bible, Augustine did use literal interpretation on much of it. But then the Roman Catholic Church really began to miss a whole lot. Um, I would even, uh, if you want a, a good challenge and something that will bring a heavy heart, um, go and study the church and the message of the church and, and a true Christology and how much they got of a true Christology and, and a, a faith alone, um, scripture alone, um, Christ alone, how much from the 400s to about the 1300s? Man, I, I don't know how people were saved. I mean, I mean it was, so it, it challenges your sovereignty of God. Like God was in control, and the message that was going out, it might as well be that. Give more money if you want your parents who died. Put some more money in the plate, and that'll help move them out of purgatory. Give more money for this. All these indulgences and things. And so all kinds of, there's like seven different works. So it's kind of a workspace. Man, it was dark, dark spiritually. I don't know how many people were saved. So people were having children, families going on, and it's a difficult thing. And so thinking through there, um, God's grace in the middle of some very dark times. You get to the... Um, um, Protestant Reformation, some, some big players, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and it's a switch. They switch from allegorical interpretation to a literal. Now, you also have to understand parts of the Bible. So when you're interpreting a, a parable, it's not a historical narrative, right? So, so like, let's say you're in um, the Psalms, the Proverbs. L let's think through those. There are poetic books, Ecclesiastes. Are you interpreting Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes as a historical narrative? No. You're understanding it's figurative language. It's poetic. The writer expected you to apply the rules of poetry to that section. When it's in Genesis, are you supposed to be trying to make it an allegory? No. He expected you to understand it's Adam and Eve. Here's the story. Here's the history. Interpret it literally. Revelation. What have we got in Revelation. It's futurative, it's also symbolic, it's also apocalyptic, very, very difficult. So when people write books and make millions going, I can promise you Thursday, um, September 15th, 2033, that this is what's going to happen. Hey, do you see who our president is? Don't you see what's happening? It's symbolic. And by the way, uh, the Bible and Revelation is not focused on 4% of the world's population, America as the center point of all the Bible. So when we have these American writers saying for the American church, here's what God's doing. Don't you see it? Revelation, this guy took office? Trump, are you kidding me? Biden, are you kidding me? Whoever's next, just know that's not, that's not central in Revelation. So don't, these guys who try to get so specific, no, it's symbolic. Don't, don't let them do that. Trust in the Lord. He's got it. He's got it. So don't, don't fall for all that stuff. And so then from 1500 to present, there's this turn to literal, uh, literal interpretation, understanding the different types of language, apocalyptic, poetry, historical narrative. It needs to be Christocentric. It needs to be a, a picture of God's redemptive history along with that. Um, so um, yeah, grammatical, historical. So how do we learn to interpret these weird creatures called the parables. It's a made-up story. First of all, the parable always has one big point, one big meaning. You're not supposed to try to um, find the, the six characters in the parable or you know, what does this seed mean or what does this mean, what does this tree mean, um, all those things. There, there's one main point that Jesus is bringing out. We'll get into that as we go along. But one main message, one main idea. Um, it's not a hundred different people that could sit out and go, you know, it means something different for me. That's not what Jesus meant. He might as well have not said anything, okay? We'll go into this next week a little bit more, but Jesus was able to communicate what he wanted to communicate. And so when we go, oh, it could mean a hundred different things. Are you talking about interpretation or are you talking about significance? If Jesus said, hey, I want you to go through that door right there, and 20 of you go, 
I don't think Jesus really meant go through that door. I think what he meant is we're going to have a lot of upcoming opportunities in life. You see what you just did? Jesus said, go through that door right there. And he, he didn't say it's open to your interpretation. Go through that door right there. And 20 people go, I don't really think he meant that door. And he's going, no, 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 you missed it. I did. I meant that door right there. But the significance would be, oh, we all know Jesus wants us to go through the door. What it's different is we don't, 100 different, don't have 100 different interpretations. We need to think through, what does that mean for a person that's at the back of the room? They've got to walk 60 feet and take a left and then go right through the door. A person down the hallway, same, same rule, same command, same main idea, go through that door. They've got to walk 40 feet down the hall, take a right, walk 93 feet of the basketball court, and take a right out there. So the significance is different from person to person, not interpretation. Because then Jesus shouldn't have said anything. Because go through the door means nothing. And so just think through that. So my mom used to say, well, you know, Sankey, um, God's word, um, people could all take it differently. So they all have different interpretations as, li- as if like that, that just means that God, God was not clear. And that's not what we're wanting to get out of it. Um, also, um, be careful on the allegorical interpretation. It's also not just moralistic stories. It's not fables for good living. Um, so we have to understand the use of language as we go into these. So let's go into Matthew chapter 12 now um, and, and, and see um, that. And so I, I'm, next week I'll include some more on interpretation. I hope that helps you. That's just safeguards. I'm not trying to mock anyone. I mean, I, I used to, oh my gosh, when I surrendered my life to Christ, I literally remember I was reading in a little um, devotional. Um, you'll love this. It was by Kenneth Copeland. And, and so you guys, I know most of you got saved through Kenneth Copeland Ministries. And so um, I, I literally, there was this little daily devotional and he, he literally said, I mean, he promised right there in that book, like Jesus is wanting to say to you today, God is wanting to say to you today, there is a window of opportunity. And I hated my job at UPS as a UPS manager. There's a window of opportunity that, that God is going to open today for you. And, I'm, and he said, if you will open you, so right now go into prayer. And he suggested praying in tongues. So I didn't do that part. So I probably failed and messed up. And that's why I ended up here. And so anyway, I, I, woke, I raised my eyes up and there was my window in my bedroom. And I went over my window. And you know when you, if you squint your eyes real deeply and then you can see the object that, that, that was there? And I thought, oh my gosh, this is God speaking. And so I went over to that window and guess what happened the next day? Just a coworker brought up another place that was hiring. And man, I got like chills, like that's the window. Kenneth Copeland was right. This is it, to get out of UPS. And so by the way, that, God had nothing to do with any of that. That was some craziness. Now God appreciated and, 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 and liked the fact that I was looking to God in faith and even you know, the miraculous, but like the window, Kenneth Copeland's teaching, all that was, was not it. So you've got to have a good interpretation as you go through stuff, okay? And so some of you may be going, oh man, that's why, how I got here this morning. So um, as we go through this, I hope that we grow in those interpretation skills also. So let's read Matthew 12, because this is, um, uh, here's a little bit of the buildup and background as we get into it. The Old Testament prophets, think through this, Matthew's gospel, how long had it been since the people of God, Israel, had heard from God? 400 years of silence. If you were used to having a prophet, not, not a preacher, but a prophet who was hearing from God and speaking directly from God, um, and now there's been 400 years. People were born, got married, had children, lived to be 70, 80, died off, not a new word from God. Under, a lot of those people were being hauled off as slaves to other places because of God's discipline. They were coming back to Jerusalem. The temple's trying to be rebuilt, and then it's tore down again. Other people, other nations coming in, taking them captive. 400 years of, of silence from God. And now here is this guy on the scene, Jesus, going, I'm the Son of God. And so beautiful Picture here, after 400 years of silence, uh, the spiritual elites, the Pharisees and Sadducees had been running the Jewish synagogues and the Jewish um, system of belief by their own rules and their power. You got to think through the people of Israel. What were they looking for and expecting in the Messiah? They were under Roman rule now, right? They'd been oppressed by nation after nation after nation after nation. And now they were thinking the Messiah, when he comes, our understanding of the Old Testament, he's going to be the new David a better version of David. He's going to set up an eternal kingdom on the earth. So he's going to come over this mountaintop. We're going to see this guy ride up like, you know, William Wallace on his horse and, and 50,000 men. And they're going to come and kick some tail of these Romans. And we're going to set up this thing and we're going to rule it like when Solomon and David had it. Jesus wasn't doing that at all, was he? In fact, he was coming 
words of grace, mercy, working miracles of God, and then confronting the religious leaders and elites' beliefs and their stances. Um, here's this peasant carpenter gaining popularity, working the miracles of God. He's from Nazareth. I mean, that's not like, you know, like uh, Muskogee. That's like Berry Hill. You know, it's this place, like, why would, why would anything come from Nazareth? Um, he's got powerful depth and spiritual truth. It's kind of amazing people at a heart level. He's doing miracles and signs. He's been doing this for two years at this point. He's speaking a message about God's kingdom that's much, much different than the message that the existing religious establishment was teaching about God's kingdom. So we give them a hard time, the Pharisees, but what if we were there? Jesus comes seeming to minimize the centrality of God's law and Moses' law. It seems that he's um, minimizing the Old Testament. It seems like he's minimizing and marginalizing God's law. And so in that, we, kinda, we, we tend to get a little nervous and agitated when someone comes confronting what we've been taught. And here comes Jesus completely confronting what they've been taught. Um, he seems to disrespect most of their highest institutions of worship. So think through their dietary societal laws, their engagement with Gentiles, um, marginalizing the laws that they proudly kept, and they kept adding to the temple and the Sabbath. Huge things in their understanding. And Jesus says, hey, the temple's going to fall down, but I'll resurrect it in three days, and it's me. That's pretty rude. <laughs> like, we, we have a respect for God. We think we're respecting God, and you just disrespected God, and this temple that we believe this is central to God, and you're saying it's you? We would have a hard time with that. And so just think through that. Um, we, we get a little nervous and agitated when someone comes confronting what we've been taught. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing. This first two or three centuries, especially um, the first 60 years, the gospel um, account was um, blowing up um, the understanding of what they thought godliness or, or, or following God looked like. So it's not confrontive to us, Matthew's gospel, it's not confronting and offensive. It was extremely confrontive and offensive. The very fact that Matthew, a tax collector, wrote it was extremely offensive to them. And so you've got to understand all those things. And so Matthew, great, great, great wisdom of God, one who doesn't fit with the culture, who doesn't fit with the Jews, who had actually stepped out of the power of the Romans and the religious elites, he doesn't feel like he fits with anyone, and God uses him to go, hey, I've got an objective view here. And I want you to notice how I'm writing this. So as we go into Matthew 12, it's a beautiful situation. So we're going to go into just three quick things. We're not doing the whole thing, but I want you to see the, these, the, the intent that Matthew has here. Um, that he is revealing the supernatural work of God in Christ, revealing that he is God's Savior. He's connecting the Old Testament Messiah expectations with Jesus fulfilling those as the final Davidic king. He's also purposely exposing the spiritual elite and the spiritual blindness of the religious elites as a surprising hindrance, not a help to following God. So those are some weird things. So that's all the, 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 the build up there. He, he's going to purposely set up chapter 13 where Jesus starts into this grouping of parables by setting the scene, the background before the turning point. So let's, let's read this, Matthew 12. Let me pray as I, as I start into this, this section. Father, we thank you for um, just laying out your word. Thank you for using um, fallen men and failing men and women in your story that shows us that we can be a part of your story as you rewrite our story. Thank you that, that it's not perfection. Thank you that it's not um, our own efforts. Thank you that you can take our flawed, failing efforts, even, even our efforts in trying to be good Christians, and you have grace and mercy. Would you allow us to learn what you want us to learn from the setup of these parables? Would you allow us to learn from, from Christ today? Would you allow us to see what you would want us to see and hear what you want us to hear? In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to skip over some parts of chapter 12, but I want us to go into this first section, at 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat it. But when the Pharisees saw it, Notice what happens. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Remember, I went through, I had a whole list that there was over a uh, hundred things that they had added to Sabbath keeping. 
And so we have to think through. So Jesus, Jesus is going through the grain fields, and, and him and his disciples are going through. And literally, as they walked through the grain fields, they were taking their hand and just grabbing it. And, and the, the Pharisees, interestingly, are watching them or following them, taking note. They're really meticulous. They're really concerned. They've got the, they're these Sabbath sheriffs wondering, the quality control guys, like watching, is anyone breaking the Sabbath? Because this guy seems to be, these guys seem to be. And they considered him, take, they're, take, they're taking their hands and pulling that, that not only they were taking and, and, and uh, harvesting the crop on the Sabbath, you can't harvest any crops on the Sabbath, they were breaking the grain open with their hands. So now there, there's an aspect of reaping, and then also the, this breaking it open was actually a work to them on the Sabbath where you're preparing food. They were not supposed to prepare food. That was not what God's law had said. They had added that. And so there was literally seven things that they were doing, six or seven, when they just took their hand and took some grain, broke it open like you would sunflower seeds, then crush it and put it in your mouth and eat it. And then partaking of it was another sin. And so all of that as they're just doing that. What was the Sabbath for? The Sabbath was God on the seventh day looking back and going, wow, that is very good. Look at my work. I glorify myself on that. That is phenomenal. It's very, very good. I'm resting now, not because I'm physically needing it, but I'm pausing to contemplate, contemplate and think through, looking back and seeing what I have done, which brings glory to myself. Hey, Israel, here's one of the laws. It's the one I'm going to give you most instruction out of the Ten Commandments. Some are just given straight the fourth one. Hey, on the Sabbath, let me give some other commentary. Here's what you should be doing. One, one day a week, pausing, not doing any work, not doing these things, to pause and contemplate what God has done in the previous week, his provision, his faithfulness. And then as you look to the upcoming week, thinking through and resting in that, resting. So you're pausing, resting, contemplating, seeing that he's provided all this and been faithful. And then you're resting. It's not by my works. I'm going to fail this next week. I, I can't live up to this. I want to strive to be close to God, but it's not by my works. And if I'm trying to get people saved, it's not by my works. Christ, would you do this? I'm resting in you. It's not by my own Christianity. It's not how good I can keep this all together. I'm resting in you. I don't care what people think. You know my heart here, Father. I'm resting in you, Christ. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be, a good gift. Would you take that? And the Pharisees had turned it into 100, 200 different lists on what Sabbath keeping looked like. So um, he said to them, have you not read what David, because that's their hero, that's their complete hero. So this is a slap in the face. We don't even realize this. David's just one of the Bible guys to us. To them, he was the ultimate. Hey, you think we're doing it wrong? What about David? He was doing the same thing. How do you think that felt? Do you remember David when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread in the presence? In the temple, in the house of God. So that's a huge one. That's even worse than, that's 10 times worse than the grain, right? Um, which it, it was not lawful for him to eat, nor of those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's pretty offensive. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice your efforts. And you trying to do all these things, I desire mercy. It should have led you to mercy. You would not have condemned the guiltless. They're not guilty. They're not guilty. And you're condemning the guiltless. Um, sometimes God brings a good gift to us the Sabbath here in this story, but in our times, other things in our lives, and we can't receive it due to all our religious alarms going off. And notice I said religious alarm, not biblical. Sometimes it's not biblical alarms going off. It's religious alarms going off. And that, doesn't, that, that in no way goes, well, let's give licentiousness and freedom to go sin. No, just it, sometimes it's not biblical. It, it's a church culture. It's a church culture conformity to a specific local church that there's these, all these things. And, and instead of receiving the good, we can't because I'm so afraid of breaking one of those things. I'm so afraid. What if we sing this song accidentally that, that a guy from California or, or Oregon, right? Oregon, oh my gosh, there's no one saving. We sing a song and we're trying to worship God and the words are biblical and we're doing that. And God is up there going, how dare you, pitiful church? Don't you know that guy in Oregon? Good grief. He used to smoke weed. Good grief. He, he, he goes to a crazy church. I won't receive your worship. Pitiful. Who wants that kind of God? And so, so we're so worried about these things, 
It's, it's, it's not biblical. It's just this religious culture fear. Jesus says, man, man, he missed the whole point. The Sabbath was my gift to you. It was mercy. Six days you toil, all this stuff. And you're going to not only toil physically, you're going to toil spiritually. I'm, I'm trying to show you rest in me. The Sabbath was supposed to be you sitting just in the Father's arms and embracing him because you need it for your soul, not just your physical, and you missed it. It's about love and mercy. And you're over here trying to keep lists and do more and do more and add to the list and add to the list. And how many in the church do that now? The Sabbath was God pausing and gazing, enjoying himself. That was what he gave us. Times had changed, and Israel had all these things. Jesus wants to set you free if you've been condemned, though you were guiltless, and you've been in a place where, where, where people heaped up rules that were not necessarily biblical. They may have, may have led you to believe they were biblical. I heard a whole bunch of them in the last couple of weeks. Uh, just you know, different. I'm not even on social media. People just tell me social media stuff. I can't remove myself from it. And so all this stuff that, that's going on in you know, church culture wars, and I'm thinking, man, they're just heaping stuff on people. I'm not talking about anything close to sin, just like church expectation. And it runs people out. And you feel guilty when you have done nothing wrong. Jesus wants to free you if you have been condemned, though you were guiltless. And also, he wants to free you if you have the tendency, if you're the one who has the tendency to condemn people who are guiltless with your lists. Yesterday at our game, sixth graders, this is important, huge significance in life, Sixth graders with a ball cow skin filled with air. It's huge significance. Um, I don't know why I love it so much. And, and so I know it's crazy. It could be a 20-year-old. It could be a 25-year-old making a you know, 400 million because they need that, right? And so, um, but I love this. And so there are these sixth graders. And, and we, we're, this team beat us last year, the last two weeks. The team before beat us. And then last year's team, uh, this, this Barry Hill beat us. And so these last two games, we had to win. We have a better team. We've got better players. We worked really, really hard. Our players, it comes down to them executing the play right. And so our, our, our main ones, our, our starting guys had done a phenomenal job. It's zero to like 36. And we had got, we'd been getting some other guys in. By the, by the end of the third quarter, um, we've got like our guys who are maybe third string and some second string guys. I've only got three starters in there. And so, and they're wore out. It's 106 degrees on the field. Um, they're wore out from the whole game. They're kind of standing around. And so then they, sure enough, they march down and march down. They still got their starters in. I've got third string in and they march down. They get this touchdown. And you know what I do? They're sixth graders, 11. Hey, are you giving up? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I can't believe. So it hasn't killed me. Like I've made it through. Like I'm going like nothing. It's probably not going to impact my week. But do you see what I was doing there? So I made this big deal about this huge and I didn't abuse them. I didn't do anything. When I was getting two or three of them that should have stepped up and done some stuff. But the rest of those guys, like eight of those guys, they were probably like, oh, I was talking to two or three, including one of my own. Because I was like, I, I just wanted to attack. Come on. Don't let these guys score on us. And, and the other eight are probably like, I'm not really good at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared of that guy across from me. And so I was heaping stuff on them that they shouldn't have had heaped on top of them. Now, three or four of them probably needed to hear it. But also we have some snowflakes. And so our guys, like they start, they get eight yards on our guys. Goes like, oh gosh, can I come out? My tummy's hurting. You're like, get in there. It's supposed to be tough. And so sometimes we're heaping stuff on people that, that makes no sense. And I'm heaping on eight kids something that makes no sense. They weren't guilty. Sure, they could have done better, but, but still, that, that, that's what some of you have been that, and some of you are the ones who heap that on them. That's what I was doing then. Next verse is 9 through 14, Sabbath abuse number 2. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, important place. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him. So notice this. Here's a guy who needs help. He's 61st in Peoria, needs help, comes up, and what do they do? Jesus hasn't started to act yet or anything. And, and notice what the religious crowd does. They're looking for things that they can nitpick. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Notice both times they've went. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is, is all the boxes being checked? Are all the boxes being checked? So they might accuse him. That's the reason. So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep in my little story there? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You've missed the point of the Sabbath again. You tell me, what does God's law lead to? 
what is the intent of God's law? The intent of the Sabbath was to, to have a heart like God, to spend time with God, to appreciate God, to have mercy and love flowing, and you've missed it. He's wanting to help a guy with a withered hand. And notice what Jesus does, just steps up right in their face, heals the guy. Well, we haven't seen that. What would that be like? And are like, we just read over it. We're just like, we're kind of used to it. We're, this is so unfamiliar for us. If a guy walked in from our surrounding area and was dragging his leg, didn't have a shirt on, was a rough, rough guy, and one of us just went up and like, just healed them, we'd probably be more skeptical and like, oh, did he pay him beforehand? Is this fake? Is this? Instead of going, wow, look what God has done. And so these guys are on the front end are wanting to condemn Jesus. Jesus just says, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and it was restored, healthy like the other. The Pharisees went out and said, how can we destroy him? So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. So now, when you go to Matthew 12, 15 through 21, Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel will go, hey, six months has passed. So those two scenarios on the Sabbath, Matthew puts together, groups them together. Now the other gospels inform you chronologically, now we're to the end of that second year. Big statement here from Isaiah. Isaiah is a big one for Old Testament Jews. And many followed him and, and healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Why would Jesus say, hey, I'm healing you guys. You're hearing this stuff. I work this miracle. Don't go tell everyone about me. That's bad evangelism, right? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen. So God speaking through Isaiah. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Aren't you thankful that God the Father found the one for us with whom his soul is well pleased? If you're not careful, you just read over Matthew, uh, Old Testament quote. Are you thankful for the Father inserting this in? I found the one whom my soul is pleased. Look at him. Look at how he treats him. Look at what he's doing. Matthew's grouping it together. Are you, are you getting all the contrast? Are you getting all the fighting, all the critique, all these things? Look, look, look at the one my soul as well, please. I know it doesn't look like it to you. I know it seems like he's breaking all the rules. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see that, that that is all attributed to you? The reason you get to go to heaven is because he's going, I'm attributing Jesus being pleasing to my soul to you. You were rebels. You couldn't have made it in, and I'm attributing that to you. We get to ascribe that glory to him. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Where are we at? Tulsa. They had no concept that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. This was extremely frustrating. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not even break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. It's a Jewish crowd. He's in the synagogue starting this out. The smoldering wick was you know, just this little, this little wick that had been used and used and used, so you know how a candle, and it gets to the point where it's not, even, it's not even hardly able to carry flame. And it's saying, hey, Jesus would even protect that soft, very weak thing, exposed. He wouldn't even blow that out in his harshness. And this this uh, type of reed that they're talking about, the, the, the type of um, the bruised reed, it, it's, it's actually like when they would take a, almost like a cane and they would, it, the reed would be the middle part. And after it got wet, it was no good for making any noise at all. And, and what's the story here? What's the picture? He just healed this guy's withered hand. The bruised reed is the people who come not well, not self-righteous, not proud. It's a guy with the withered hand who deserves nothing. And he, he has mercy on those who don't deserve it. And so it's showing and picturing this type of guy who, who cares for those who are downcast, those who are broken, those who are weary. And he's coming to him. These are the acts of God right in front of you, and you're not seeing it. He would show mercy to the smoldering wick and the bruised reed, the broken, the weak, the needy, who are desperate for Jesus. The healthy, the self-righteous, continue just list up and list up and list up all the reasons why this isn't good. Now, the weighty reason that he, in closing, the, the weighty reason for Jesus' parables, notice this gets to a very, very difficult part that many of us have questions on about talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
I told you earlier that he gets to this turning point. From this point on, those scenarios right there, and then this turning point is when Jesus goes from this point on. And from Matthew 13 on, that period, that, that last year, he wouldn't speak to the crowds, the public, and just tell them all these things in discourses anymore. He would only speak to them in parables. And we'll learn a little bit more next week. But then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So think through this. Last story, Matthew's grouping things together, is a guy with a withered hand, physically disabled. Matthew goes, hey, much worse than a physical disablement. He's demon-possessed. He's controlled by demons and Satan. He's blind. He can't see anything at all. He's mute. He can't see anything at all. So spiritually, separated eternally, controlled by Satan right now. Physically, the worst possible scenario. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. Can this be the son of David? Ticks some people off when you say that. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Have you ever tried to do something good? And all you got was accusation, accusation, accusation that, that you, you, you're doing it from some wrong motive. You're doing it from some wrong reason. There's got to be something. Jesus just takes it every time. Still, what does he do? Got more grace for you. Going to go die for you. Keep mouthing. Keep condemning. Keep accusing. That's why I'm here. Because you don't even realize the very reason you're doing that is why I'm here. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They've been waiting for this, waiting for this Messiah. He's saying, it's here. And now you just come accusing and condemning, and the kingdom of God just fell on you. Why would it profit Satan for, for him to use Jesus by Beelzebub to work in those powers? That, that's his argument. That doesn't make sense at all. So it can't be that. Verse 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Big statement. Every sin and blasphemy. Have you done those? Will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against even the Son of Man, him, will be forgiven. Hey, by the way, that's what you're all doing. That's what he's saying. Do you get it? Even the Son of Man. And that's what all of you have been doing. It's going to be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, so you're either for Christ or against Christ. There's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. He's going very clearly, hey, youth, kids, you can't live for Christ and then still play over here in the kingdom of Satan. As you get older, thinking through adults. If you've got these little secret pockets of, of, of sin and this kingdom of sin, which is a kingdom of self being controlled by Satan, you're, you're not living for the kingdom of God. It's either or. You, you, can't, you can't live for Christ and live for sin. Like Romans 6 says, all my college students, I go, you know, they're like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this. I've got this. I'm living with my girlfriend. I'm living like this on Thursday and Friday, Saturday nights. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this, doing this. And I was like, well, hey, um, but I got saved four times at false creek. And I've, I prayed that prayer and all that. Well, hey, Romans 6 says, you're not understanding the gospel. Romans 6 says, haven't you been freed from sin? You, you can't live for, for, for Satan over here and self and sin and still be living for Christ. And so as you guys get older, think through that. You can't live for Satan and live for sin at the same time. You're being lied to and being deceived. And Jesus is going, hey, but I'm here. And I'm calling you to myself. I'm calling you to myself. And so even in your sanctification, if you're a Christian, his beautiful message is here for their... So why did God insert this in Matthew's understanding for the church? He, it's not, this is not lost culture. This isn't Hollywood. This isn't you know, all the things you're feared of, China or Russia. This isn't liberal media. This isn't liberal um, stuff. This is for the church. And, and, and he's going, I knew the church would hear this stuff. I want you to understand, believers, you can't still 
live for Christ like you say you're wanting to do and then live in these little secret sins and this, this secret sin stuff. And then he goes into that rejection of the Holy Spirit. So just so you'll know, someone says GD. So I was taught growing up, if you ever said GD, I'm not going to say it. Um, like, uh, I think my grandma said, if you ever say that, that's, that's an unpardonable sin. And then I've heard people say, like, if you said certain things about the Holy Spirit's not working or the Holy Spirit, I've even heard in some charismatic churches that if, you, if you're not receiving gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy and those things, then you're rejecting the Holy Spirit, which they then slip this verse in to say, you, this is the unpardonable sin, sin against the Holy Spirit. That's not it at all. So you shouldn't have that fear. This is an overall, Jesus is revealing, you have rejected the very works of God right in front of your face including God himself, you've rejected it completely. This is a hardening of your hearts. You've rejected it. And, and if you remain that way and don't repent, there is no forgiveness. You, you can cuss me. You can scream at me. You can accuse me. You can murder me. What do he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know, don't know what they do. Forgive these people who are killing me, accuse me. But if you reject the Holy Spirit and your heart is hardened and you don't soften your heart and respond to the Holy Spirit, that's the unpardonable sin. So it's not one specific day you said GD or one day you didn't go to church or one day whatever you're listening. It's you rejecting the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's a serious, serious matter. So the weighty reason behind Jesus' parables comes in Matthew 13 the next week. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That's a scary, weighty, sobering thing. So you need to consider, are you one who is actually hearing? Not listening. Everyone's listening right now, but are you hearing the Spirit? You may see stuff with your eyes, but are you seeing what the Spirit's wanting to do in your life? Are you wanting to see transformation and change? So parables should be a humbling, sobering understanding of grace, but also a warning of a hardening heart against the Holy Spirit. So as we go through these next few weeks, I hope that you see that. I hope that you can walk away understanding that aspect and be pleading for the Lord to restore joy, restore um, hope, to restore um, a trust and a faith. Ask the Holy Spirit, is there hardening going on? This is why these parables are given. Is there a hardening on my heart, deceitfulness that has happened, where I've been led astray? I want to be brought back to joy and fulfillment in you. So that's what he offers here. As we go to the Lord's Supper, um, that's what's laid out before us. We do this every week so that we can see. Every week. He, he gave this to the church to do it. As, as often as you do this, in remembrance of me, what I lived, what I taught, what I, what I did for you, what I sacrificed, I do this in remembrance. You do this in remembrance of me to look at the gospel every single week to see, is there parts of your heart that are just hardened? And you may go, you know, it's not, it's not 100%. It's, it's 80% for God, but there's this 20% that I want control of. This 20% that I will rule and reign. And some of us are not even aware of it. So asking the Holy Spirit, will you show me areas that are out of line? Will you show me those as we partake of this? If your heart is hardened and you're not a believer, you can't partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're, if you're not a believer, it's not showing evidence in your own heart that you're in love with Christ we say, stay away from the table. We guard the table. You cannot partake of this. But if you're a person that says, I am a believer and I'm a follower of Christ, I want to rejoice in this. And even this last week, I've had horrible things that have happened. Man, this is the reminder. I take this to remind me that it's not based on what this week was like. It was based on Christ. And so we get to spend time in the parables of him saying, this is me. This is my body. This is my life. This is my teaching. I invite you to come sit at the table. And so that's what we get this week. So let me pray over the Lord's Supper, and then I'll let you guys partake. Father, we do thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for Matthew, poor guy who probably couldn't find a friend, who was probably, um, in our terms, bullied all the time. Disciples didn't even like him, but you loved him. And you saved him, and you used him to give us this account. Thank you, because most of us, if we've been churched for very long, we, we can probably identify with the Pharisees and their fears, Father, of, of, of wanting to do everything for God and yet being blind sometimes. Mercy, love, compassion, gentleness. Looking over those things to, to make sure we're keeping our list over here.
condemning the guiltless. You sent that to the church, God. And Jesus is the one saying, I can even forgive that. I can help you with that. We thank you that you give us Matthew's words. We thank you for giving us your body and your blood. We pray that you would allow us to receive that as we receive this word. That we would receive the Lord's Supper. We look forward to the day when when your nail-scarred hand is the one handing us the the wine and the, the bread. We look forward to that day being face to face. We know that the kingdom of God is here present where we're in it right now. It's visible in some ways, but it's invisible. Now on the invisible part, would you allow us to have the Holy Spirit adjusting our hearts and give us much beauty and understanding and rejoicing in the truth? Would you transform us and renew us? In your name we pray. Amen.